Rachel Creekon. Hello and welcome to episode 15 of Get Your Creek On, a podcast about Jonathan Creek. Thanks for joining me today for the story of Ezra Carr, an old man found dead at his bedroom window with a knife in his back. Who killed him is probably the main question you'd think we'd have about that, but things get a whole lot more ambiguous when the true identity of Ezra gets called into question. Having even a cursory glance at the episode is advisable before listening to the pod, otherwise you've got no reference as to what to visualise. Now, if you haven't watched any Jonathan Creek before, then the following very much applies. No Creek, you freak, baby. Ghosts Forge aired on December the 18th, 1999, and, as is tradition, the next section, Episode Synopsis, is introduced by the friendly Australian man saying, Episode Synopsis. Episode Synopsis. Adam Klaus drops off his girlfriend at home in a Rolls Royce after she returns from a trip to Japan. She's brought him back a fancy kimono and he heads off to a florist to buy her some flowers. He starts dictating a soppy message to the shop assistant to add to the card but, as she writes it down, he realises how beautiful she is and starts addressing it to her instead. Jonathan and Maddie are at Maddie's flat, waiting for a former colleague of hers called Mimi Tranter, who's written to say that she's coming to meet Jonathan. Maddie slags Mimi off a bit, as something of a bimbo, and, having read through her letter, Jonathan notes that the two types of people you really don't want to hear from are serial killers and anyone who spells thanks with an X. An Oompa band suddenly kicks up out in the street, Maddie shouts at them out of the window, but they ignore her and continue playing. Mimi turns up at the door and comes in, then leans out of the window and essentially uses her cleavage to shut the band up. She introduces herself to Jonathan and tells him that she has a mystery for him. She's a huge fan of the Adam Klaus show, but notes that she never has any issue working out how the tricks are all done. She then starts talking about her lover Robin, a married man with a six-month-old daughter. She talks about how they met when she went to interview him when he won a story writing competition, noting how it appeared strange that he and his wife just didn't fit together properly. Recently he had a nightmare and kept referring to something called Ghost's Forge in his sleep, and then later remembered that he'd read something about a dead body found in a spooky old house in Norfolk by that name. The victim was an old hermit called Ezra Carr, who was discovered at a window with a knife in his back. There was also blood on the floor at the foot of the stairs, but it didn't belong to the murder victim. Mimi's got hold of the police report and suggests that the three of them go there to figure out what happened. Maddie thinks it's pointless and there's no story in it. An old guy was stabbed to death, big deal. Mimi says there was no motive because the guy lived alone, nobody knew him, he had no next of kin, and nothing was even stolen from the house. She's got access the following Saturday, and Jonathan suddenly seems quite keen. Robin then turns up to collect Mimi and is introduced to Maddie and Jonathan. He sees all the Ghost's Forge cuttings and seems to get a bit anxious about it all, and then they head off. As Jonathan heads away too, the Oompa band starts up again in the street, much to Maddie's chagrin. At the theatre, the crew are having a meeting when Adam passes a newspaper cutting round. 
the Macclesfield Echo's Dougie Dawson has criticised the show, and Adam quickly reiterates how irrelevant the whole thing is, only to then reveal he's had the cutting blown up into an enormous backdrop for the rear of the stage. The meeting concludes without any work having actually been discussed, and then Samantha, the florist lady, turns up and Adam heads off with her. At Robin's house, his wife Shirley catches a scent of something, probably perfume, on one of Robin's shirts. She rifles through his jackets and finds a piece of paper with an address on it. Meanwhile, Robin and Mimi are conducting the most raunchy scene in Jonathan Creek to date, as Shirley jumps into the car. We're led to believe she's about to catch them in the act, but she has in fact headed to Maddie's, and sprays her with red paint, mistakenly thinking it's Maddie with whom he's having the affair. After Shirley leaves, and despite it being the middle of the night, that bloody Oompa band starts up yet again. The next day, Jonathan, Maddie and Mimi head to Ghost's Forge, with Mimi apologising to Maddie for the whole mix-up with the paint. As she meets the estate agent letting them in, Jonathan reads the new two-page spread Dougie Dawson has written, ripping Adam's show to shreds. Adam calls at that moment and Jonathan suggests being super nice to Dougie Dawson and inviting him to a rehearsal or something. As they drive in through the gate, Jonathan looks at the Ghost's Forge sign and remarks that it's their first curiosity. Inside, Maddie's sceptical about what they're actually going to find given the dead guy was found months ago and the decorators are currently in. The blood at the foot of the stairs is still there, however, and Jonathan notes that it was probably from someone falling down those stairs. Upstairs, he wonders aloud some more about what Ghost's Forge means. After hearing a noise from the attic room, they head up and, after being startled by a bat, Jonathan finds a packet of five identical books. The Grave Digger by Gerald Eastland. They head to the room where the old guy was found dead, but the door's locked. Maddie takes Mimi outside and shimmies up a ladder and in through the window. After a few moments, Jonathan calls into her without a response. Mimi heads up the ladder and into the room. Maddie's completely disappeared. She didn't go back out through the window or through the locked door, which Jonathan has been sitting right outside. Jonathan heads down outside and up the ladder, but he and Mimi can find no trace of Maddie. After trying to figure out what's happened, the pair of them head down to the car, and Jonathan says they'd better call the police. However, as Mimi's about to do so, Maddie suddenly appears and gets into the car. She's thrilled at having bamboozled Mimi, and whilst Jonathan quickly realises how she's done it, he is quite impressed. Meanwhile, Adam's at Samantha's house, and they're getting pretty intimate. She says she's off to freshen up in the bathroom, and as he starts to get undressed, unfortunately, he glances through the bathroom door and sees a set of false teeth in a glass. Horrified, he grabs his jacket and scarpers. At the windmill that night, Maddie gloats at having wiped the cocky smile off Mimi's face with her trick earlier on. Jonathan's having a read of the Gravedigger and has also tracked down the magazine that Robin's prize-winning story was published in. They chat briefly about Robin and his wife, and Maddie notes how Mimi's comment that they didn't really fit together actually seems to have some substance. Jonathan tells Maddie what he's worked out about the house name. There's no apostrophe in it, and he's figured out why. It means ghosts for GE. In other words, here lives Gerald Eastland's ghostwriter. Gerald Eastland was a former politician who turned into a successful novelist, 
and it turns out Ezra Carr was his collaborator. That's why the publisher sent him a pack of copies of one of the books that he'd written. At the theatre, Adam runs through a trick involving him dressed as an Indian, which these days would no doubt result in outraged claims of grotesque cultural appropriation and probably no doubt also racism. He then mentions how, in his opinion, his assistant's skirt is too short and how he really doesn't think that that's at all appropriate. He's saying all this because Dougie Dawson is watching on from the otherwise empty auditorium, but unfortunately for Adam, as he continues grandstanding, Samantha turns up and berates him for doing a runner from her bedroom the previous night, clarifying that the false teeth actually belong to her elderly grandmother. She tells everyone listening that Adam has the character of a dog turd, and Dougie Dawson zealously notes it all down. Maddie swings by and tells Jonathan she's just had a chat with Gerald Eastland's publishers, and that Jonathan is indeed correct about him having a ghostwriter. Mimi turns up unannounced at Robin's house, and tells Shirley that he wants to divorce her. He doesn't react positively though, telling Mimi that she doesn't know what she's on about, that he has no life, and that he killed Ezra Carr. At that moment Jonathan and Maddie turn up, and everything gets explained. Meanwhile, at the theatre, Adam tries to sweet-talk Dougie Dawson with some champagne. He's wearing the kimono from earlier and Dougie, who worked in Japan for several years, somewhat pleasingly tells Adam that the writing on the front reads, I am full of shit. Back at Robin and Shirley's house, Jonathan performs the denouement. It was generally accepted by the cops that no burglary had taken place at Ghost Forge the night that Ezra Carr was murdered, but they were in fact wrong. Ezra Carr himself was taken from the house that evening. When you hear the name Ezra Carr, you just assume it's an old man, but in fact it can just as feasibly be someone in their late 30s, a man who lost his wife when they were both young, and then lived as a hermit for 20 odd years, working as a ghostwriter of novels. It turns out Shirley and her uncle used to be criminals who broke into people's houses. She would distract the owners and he would steal stuff. They went to Ghost Forge one rainy night where Robin, aka Ezra Carr, lived. She faked a scenario where her car had broken down, got talking to him and started fantasising about a different life where she was with him instead of her uncle. Meanwhile, her uncle was upstairs stealing valuables. Robin slash Ezra accosted him and in the struggle fell down the stairs banging his head. Meanwhile, Shirley freaked out, reached the end of her tether and stabbed her uncle to death. He was the old man at the window. Now it starts getting even weirder though. Ezra wakes up and can't remember anything, so Shirley starts feeding him completely made up information about who he is. A bloke called Robin, other stuff about where he's from, and then convinces him that they are in fact married, that he accidentally killed Ezra Carr, and that they now need to get out of there quickly. She took him home and, over the following months, rebuilt his memories with completely falsified ones. Then they started a family of their own, and she went from day to day just hoping he wouldn't ever remember anything of his old life, but her ploy went off the rails when he met and fell in love with Mimi. After Shirley finishes telling this crazy tale, Robin can barely believe how she's done this to him, essentially reprogramming him into a completely different person. 
Jonathan tells of how he finds similarities in the writing of Gerald Eastland and Robin's short story, and realised it could in fact be the same person. Maddie and Jonathan then get up to leave, and she takes the opportunity to annoy Mimi once again by pretending to offer up the solution to her disappearing act, before then not telling her. We finish back at Maddie's flat. She explains to him how she pre-visited Ghost's Forge and decided to play the disappearing trick. She got the workman there to block up the main door to the room from the inside so that only the cupboard remained. When Maddie entered the room up the ladder, she hid in the cupboard, which Mimi thought was the main door. Jonathan gives her a 6 out of 10 for this trick and she's about to chastise him for this when the band strikes up again in the street. She's prepared this time, however, and blasts them with a hose from her window, only to find that on this occasion it's a funeral procession and that she's soaked all of them. Episode Analysis After being absent since his court case in the Series 3 opener, Adam Klaus returned in this episode and was back to his old philandering ways trading in his glamorous jet-setting blonde partner for Samantha, the sultry florist. Given everything we've seen from him to date, it's perhaps not surprising that he had no compunction in scarpering from the scene when incorrectly presuming that Samantha had false teeth, which ultimately led to even more awkwardness in the scene where he confronted Dougie Dawson. It would have been nice to see that whole thing play out a bit further, but as ever, time will have been of the essence and there was quite a bit to fit in for the main story. The Ezra Carr mystery ultimately turned out to be a bit on the unbelievable side if we're being honest, and when we find out that Robin was Ezra and that a fall down the stairs had somehow wiped his entire life's memory, it just seemed so unlikely as to be quite preposterous. Quite how a relatively young man could live in such a massive house for 20 years only for nobody to realise that the guy found dead wasn't him doesn't really add up. For there to be absolutely no family members involved in winding up the estate or dealing with the funeral, or for the publishers to not somehow realise there was a discrepancy, didn't quite ring true. Shirley's scheme to mould Robin into a dream husband with the worry going on in her head that one day he'd wake up and remember something of his past life would have probably driven her to a nervous breakdown at some point if we're being realistic. Nevertheless, I thought this was all a very enjoyable episode and very funny in parts. The constant piping up of the band outside Maddie's flat, even in the middle of the night, felt like a very David Rennick yarn and you can imagine the same thing happening to Victor Meldrew in One Foot in the Grave. It was fun to see Maddie getting one over not only Mimi but also, very briefly, Jonathan for once with the stunt at the creepy old house. You do need to suspend your belief slightly for that one, whether anyone in their right mind would go to the time and expense of engaging tradesmen to do that work and then later undo it again is debatable, but it made for a very entertaining scene. Comedian Jim Bowen played Dougie Dawson, Lisette Anthony played Mimi Tranter, Mark Allen was Robin Priest and Sarah Stevens portrayed Shirley. Samantha, the florist, was played by Gina Bellman, and you may remember we mentioned back on the Black Canary episode that Kate Isitt there was the first of the three main female characters from Coupling to appear in Jonathan Creek, and Gina Bellman is the second. The third of them, Sarah Alexander, uh, I think she disappeared, no one heard from her ever again. 
Now, I don't know if you know anything about television production, but in addition to a script and actors and cameras and other stuff, you also need places to actually film at. And luckily, for the production of this episode of Jonathan Creek, the crew had somewhere to go. The Celebration of Location Information Station The main location in the episode this week was of course Ghost's Forge itself, and in real life, it's a house called Adhurst St Mary, which is just outside the town of Petersfield in Hampshire, around halfway between London and Portsmouth. Built in the 1860s or 70s, it was designed by the architect Philip Hardwick and was used as a military hospital during World War I. Until the early 90s, the house and grounds were owned by the Bonham Carter family, the most famous celebrity member of which is Helena Bonham Carter. Various attempts have been made over the years to turn the house into a hotel, but this development has never taken place, having been stymied by the planning process. And at the time of recording, it's being let out privately as a house for a guide price of £5,000 per month. Thankfully for me, that amount is absolute peanuts considering what I'm raking in through the Buy Me A Coffee service, so I've sent in an application for a lease, and I assume it will soon be approved. Creek Connections At 33 seconds, we see that the number plate of Adam's Rolls-Royce is L531GUL. Gul Mohammed, an Indian man, was the shortest human being of all time while he was alive, standing at just 57 centimetres tall. He was from New Delhi, and the foundation stone of New Delhi was laid in 1911, designed by Edwin Lutyens and Sir Herbert Baker. Baker's tomb is in Westminster Abbey, in the precincts of which is Westminster School, the alumni of which includes documentary maker Louis Theroux. The soundtrack to his 2016 film My Scientology Movie was produced by musician Dan Jones, who received an Ivor Novello nomination for this work. The first woman to win an Ivor Novello award was Lindsay DePaul for her 1974 song won't Somebody Dance With Me, which has been covered by, amongst others, Petula Clark. Petula Clark was born on November 15, 1932, which, when written down using numbers in the American format of month, day, year, is 11-15-32. 11-15-32 is the sort code for Halifax Bank in the UK, an institution founded in the town of that same name. In 1938, an incident of mass hysteria took place in Halifax, prompted by a rash of attacks on local people by an individual christened the Halifax Slasher. The attacks were so serious that Scotland Yard was summoned to help solve the case. Scotland Yard moved its London headquarters in 2016, shifting from Number 10 Broadway to the Curtis Green Building on Embankment on October the 31st. The 31st largest city in the United States is Milwaukee, and amongst those born in the city was character actor Jeff Doucette, who starred in TV shows including Third Rock from the Sun and ER, 
and also the 2016 film All The Way, in which he portrayed racist Mississippi Senator James Eastland. Gerald Eastland was the politician whose books and ghost forge provided the clue from which Jonathan was able to figure out the solution to the whole mystery. Jesus wept, and little bloody wonder he did. Another Creek Connection, next time. Eat. Sleep. Creek. Repeat. Ghosts for GE aired on December the 18th, 1999, and here is a roundup of what else was happening that very day. Steven Spielberg turned 53, Brad Pitt turned 36, and Billie Eilish was exactly minus two years old. Joseph Stalin would have been turning 121 if he only hadn't been murdered, allegedly. NASA launched into orbit the Terra platform, carrying five Earth observation instruments, including Aster, Ceres, Miser, Modus, and Mopit. I think Modus is definitely my favourite of those, the acronym, as we all know, standing for Moderate Resolution Imaging Spectral Radiometer. It was International Migrants Day, and it was Republic Day in the African country of Niger. That's Niger. Be very careful of your pronunciation of that, especially if you're planning on visiting. That's what was going on in 1999, but here at Get Your Creek On, it's also very important to look to the future, and what better way to do so than getting involved with a hip new online video sharing service called YouTube. All episodes of the pod are up there now if you fancy listening while staring at a static picture from the show. I felt it was important to make sure this jaunt into the world of video was done to the very best possible standards. I managed to procure a book by a, quote, leading expert in mass consumption media, communications and storytelling. It's entitled Like, Comment, Share, Buy, The Beginner's Guide to Marketing Your Business with Video Storytelling. And you'll never believe this, the author's name is Jonathan Creek. I am shitting you not. As the blurb states, by unpacking the art of video storytelling and revealing trade secrets, author Jonathan Creek will show you how to make video that fits your brand and your audience on any budget. It's a great book and I've taken the liberty of employing a robot to read some choice quotes which I hope will inspire, stimulate and delight. Here we go. Excerpts from, like, comment, share, buy. The Beginner's Guide to Marketing Your Business with Video Storytelling. By Jonathan Creek. I know this is a big call but, the internet needs saving, and I need your help to do it. The problem is that while everyone has access to video making tools these days, most don't know how to take advantage of it. There are too many Karens and Derens sweating the small stuff. Too many politicians pushing agendas. Too many big brand sales guys and girls just being pushy. 
The internet is drowning in boring vanilla corporate videos that fail to inspire, connect or convert anyone. To save the internet, it needs to stop. They need to be stopped. There's one piece of advice I drill into the clients I work with. It's time-tested, having held true since prehistoric men and women were drawing stories on cave walls. If you want them to share, first you must make them care. In my circle of friends, I am the recognized Star Wars source. So whenever any new source delivers great Star Wars content, I am going to join that community and will stay there as long as Star Wars retains currency in my community. 99% of all content uploaded to the internet is of no relevance to you, while a different 99% is irrelevant to me. You may be interested in cooking, for instance, while I couldn't care less about it. You already know I'm a massive Star Wars fan. As the Star Wars guy within my social networks I'm always the first to share the best news and content on the topic. The better the content, the stronger my standing and identity as the go-to authority among my friends. Join my social circle and start posting Star Wars content and you'll be in more trouble than Han Solo in Carbonite, lol. My whole life has been about media impact as an art form while ensuring the train never runs out of control. Hyper-relevant Hyper equals, equals more engagement equals, equals, equals more growth equals, equals more dollars. dollars. Among my Facebook friends, as I've mentioned, my gold ticket is finding and sharing Star Wars related posts. Being the first to deliver and share these clips makes me feel as if I am improving my status among my friends because I'm more in tune with Star Wars than they are. Making me the mega fan of the group. Actions equals data, and data equals dollars. The fact you have stayed with me on this journey is your advantage. Thank you very much indeed for listening to this episode of Get Your Creek On. If you are enjoying the show, please do take a moment to write a glowing review wherever you get your podcasts. In turn, it'll really help more people to discover the pod. You can get in touch anytime by emailing getyourcreekon at gmail.com or via Twitter. It's at creekget. The website is www.getyourcreekon.co.uk and you can head to buymeacoffee.com slash getyourcreekon to help cover the costs of the show. The next episode of the pod will be Jonathan Creek Series 3, Episode 5, Miracle in Crooked Lane. How can a woman who was burned to death after dropping her fag into the petrol of the lawnmower be seen wandering about unscathed later on? Fag does mean cigarette, by the way, so if you're American and you're wondering why I said fag, it doesn't mean that, so don't worry about it. That's us for today. Please do join me again next time for some more Get Your Creek On, and I will look forward to having you. I'm Toby. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to Get Your Creek On.